Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, the show where we learn about the people who make up the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash mediapeoplepodcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching Media People Podcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. Analytics have never played such a pivotal role in advertising than as they do today. Gut instincts and assumptions have taken a backseat to data in the decision-making process, and today's guest, Devin McDonald, is at the forefront of this practice. He is presently the Chief Strategy Officer for Mindshare Canada, where he leads overall strategy and story for the agency and their roster of clients. But Devin's career didn't start in advertising. We'll find out how this poli-sci graduate started off in computer programming and how he eventually landed in the media agency world. Devin, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's go into your current role, Chief Strategy Officer at Mindshare. Sounds like an all-encompassing role. Uh, what does the Chief Strategy Officer do at a media agency? Well, it is all-encompassing, and within my role right now, I lead our comms planning team, our insights team, and an analytics team, and really that strategy across all of our clients and our agency. Wow. And you mentioned analytics and looking through your history, you're a pretty data heavy guy, aren't you? That's where you really started more than anything else, wasn't it? Uh, it is indeed. And I come into marketing from a very different background and that I come from the data side of things and the technology world. And in my career history, I was in fact a instructor for database programming at one time. So you were really into data before data really married itself with uh, media the way it has. Like it's always been prevalent if you go back 20 years, Nielsen, BBM and stuff like that. But now you can't go anywhere without data being attached to things. Well, it was a really interesting time for me in my career. And I don't want to say I got lucky because I still did work very hard and applied myself. Um, but at the time, computer programming and the use of data was really up and coming within organizations. In, in consulting and in doing work, the departments within organizations, besides finance, obviously, that were using data, were sales and marketing departments. It was an emerging time in the late 90s to be using data and to be using new tools like the web uh, to help connect with customers. But you didn't start off uh, in data or, or in uh, information technology. You started off in political science, right, at the University of Ottawa. I did, which in itself, you know, it was one of those things when I was much younger to say, well, what do I want to do? And it was a, a passion I had and an interest I have and still have today on a personal level. But even in itself, politics is the study of a structure and to understand how a structure is designed and built in the ability to make decisions. You grew up in the West End of Toronto, but I guess the University of Ottawa, it being in Ottawa and you wanted to study in politics, you figured you might as well go where the politicians were. Is that what... Absolutely. You know, go to the source of the problem or opportunity, depending what you looked at it. And uh, it just seemed like a, a great city to go to school as well. But after you graduated from the University of Ottawa, you did a bit of a pivot, and that's where you found yourself in information uh, technology. So tell us about what you did after in college and where you went. So it was a vocational school called Herzing. And when I graduated university, it was a recession time here in Ontario. It was a very different time. And there was a lot of struggle to, um, to find work. And I knew I needed to do something a little more applicable to the world today and to the future of the world. Uh, my older brother was in the IT business. And uh, having an aptitude for computers and a very curious mindset, uh, I was really attracted to it. 
What was IT like back then? Because when people think of IT now, and especially in the media world, uh, it's a lot of things like data and software as a service. But I imagine it was a lot different back then, correct? It was very different. And it was the transition uh, to the service then. And uh, when I first started, uh, some of the languages that we would use and some of the clients that we had were still on mainframe systems, which... Uh, some of I, I don't even know what that means. Would not even know what that is. It's <laughs> just a completely different architecture. And the big problem of the day was the Y2K crisis, or to understand what would happen if uh, the year code went from two digits to four digits. They weren't really sure what was going to happen. Oh, geez. And Y2K, one more time for anyone who was born in the early 90s and doesn't know that. Look, I've got a media coordinator. She was born in the early 90s. We mentioned stuff from the 80s, right over her head, anything nostalgic. Uh, basically, they built the operating systems to go up to, what was it, December 31st, 1999? And well, then they was, wouldn't go over. It would restart at 1900 or something like that? Well, it was just a two-digit year code. And so from 99, it would then go to zero. Or zero zero. There was no third digit to accommodate for the next century or the next millennium, even in this case. And we were expecting complete pandemonium, mayhem, bank machines would be spitting out money, it would be like the virtual apocalypse. Nothing happened. Well, the worst was assumed, and a lot of companies and a lot of clients spent a lot of time and money uh, moving systems to a four-digit code and testing to see just what is going to happen. There were articles about the fear of planes dropping out of the sky. Oh, God. <laughs> I can understand why people would want to avoid that. So after you finished college, what was your first gig? Uh, my first gig was with a consulting firm called EDS, Electronic Data Systems. And they um, are one of the largest and oldest inf information technology consulting firms that exist. Um, and I was an analyst for them, uh, working with a variety of clients. And again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, those clients, the departments of those clients, ended up being sales and marketing and customer service organizations. Being a consultant, did you find yourself working on the road a lot? Uh, that one in particular, I was lucky enough to, uh, to not be on the road too much. I had a couple of clients, mostly in Toronto, and then I did have to travel or got the chance to travel to our head office in Texas for a period of time as well. Tell us about your time at Reboot, because I find this very interesting. It was an IT charity, if I... Could I say that? Is that the yeah. best way to summarize it? Mm -hmm. So tell us uh, how Reboot worked. Um, well, Reboot itself, uh, as you mentioned, was a charitable organization with a, a mandate to bridge the digital divide. And I, for my whole life, I've always been attracted in, to volunteering. I've always made sure I have a volunteer effort in whatever I do, just sort of how I was raised. Uh, uh, Reboot was a place that I was volunteering at and supporting and they were looking for a new director to help expand the business and to expand what it was going to do. Um, so I came in to help support them um, and to help lead and grow the organization to work on hardware and work on software and to teach other charitable organizations and other people how to use technology to better what they did. Okay, and you said it did a whole bunch of things like a lot of the philanthropic efforts were, correct me if I'm wrong, donating computers, installing software, things like that, uh, really getting out there. Absolutely, building uh, computer networks for people and teaching organizations how to use software and how to use data to do fundraising and how to use the Internet to uh, get their voice out to other consumers. Where did you land after that? Uh, after that, uh, so I'd run that group for a number of years and helped launch 
10 other locations of that office. And from there, I went back to uh, consulting and worked with IBM and their global business services unit. Okay. Uh, and as a consultant with IBM, I know I asked this question a lot, or I asked this question earlier, but did this one put you on the road quite a bit? Absolutely. Did you like working on the road? Some people, it's mixed feelings. Some people really are into that, working out of hotels, uh, living out of a suitcase. But for others, they kind of like that more grounded structure. I really enjoyed doing different things. And there was something that someone said to me, it could be perceived as arrogant, but when people hire IBM, they hire them for big problems. And the ability to be able to go to so many different client sites and to meet with so many different senior executives around the problems that they were facing is what really excited me and what I enjoy about consulting. The travel aspect, not as exciting. It's not very glamorous after the first couple times and uh, can, be, can be quite hard to do. Do you know how long you're going to be on the road when you're dealing with a certain case or, or incident? Because I imagine once you get there, get there, you have to assess the problem. You've got a summary, but you don't know if it could take you a day, two, maybe a couple of weeks or anything like that. Well, usually projects would be sold in, in uh, week-long increments. So you would know going into it if it was a one-week or two-week or six-month project you were working on. And depending on that as well, you would negotiate with the client travel time to come back to wherever you were. Now, that travel could be to Kitchener, or that travel could be to San Francisco, or to Switzerland. It's a real wide range. Can you give us just one example of some of the problems, or one example of one problem that you had to deal with? I guess probably the most prevalent one for managers during that time in your capacity as a consultant for IBM. Uh, well, related to the to the media world in particular, there was an interesting problem that we were looking at where one broadcast company bought another here in Canada, and they went from 20 channels to 80 channels. Oh, geez. And we helped design and implement a system with a third-party software vendor to keep track of all the commercial sales um, for those 80 channels. Previous to the software being developed and implemented, it was basically done on 80 independent Excel spreadsheets. It's funny you mention that because that's kind of how I, not to make this about me, but that's kind of how I found my way in the industry. I was at CBC. They were looking at implementing a new booking system for television, and they had to hire coordinators to double book contracts just in case when they went live with the new system. Uh, if it failed, the old system would be there as backup. So that's what we were doing. Well, it sounds boring, but prudent as well at the same time. It, it was fun, and it was necessary. That's what they kept driving home was you don't want to see two minutes of black after they cut to commercial. Not a good thing. No. And so after you left IBM, would you say Kenna was your first gig in media? Uh, it was my first gig in the agency world. Okay. Uh, Kenna itself um, has been bought and no longer really exists. Um, but I was introduced to them uh, through a recruiter, and I was looking to get out of consulting because of the heavy travel. Again, I really enjoyed the work that I did and the problems that I looked at. But I needed uh, a desk to go to, or as my wife said at the time, I need a real job. <laughs> and Kenna uh, was a very innovative company that was uh, ahead of its time in the use of data and the use of technology in developing solutions for clients and seemed like a very natural fit for me to, uh, to migrate to. Can you talk a little bit about what you might have done at Kenna, per se, with some of the data? Like, how were they ahead uh, compared to the competition or other agencies at that time? We had uh, one automotive OEM as a client um, that uh, was not the leader in their category, the leader in their, in their uh, segment, but understood early on that they could get ahead of, the other, of their competitors 
by investing in data and investing in technology. And we built a system that I've seen very few other OEMs been able to get close to, and I've worked with a number since, that integrated all their CRM, all their web, all their sales data, all their service data, and all their media data all in a single spot. And, you know, that's going back uh, seven or eight years, and I think a lot of OEMs would be envious to have that ability today. So they got a whole snapshot of their customer then? Uh, of a complete snapshot of their customer and everything that they did with their organization. After Kenna, you moved on to BBDO Proximity. Tell us about your time there. Uh, it was really exciting. Um, we had an amazing uh, planning and strategy team at BBDO Proximity with a lot of senior people. Um, I was really attracted to it. I enjoyed the work that I did at Kenna. Um, and getting into the advertising world more, I knew that, uh, well, I wanted to work with a larger organization again. And that opportunity to work on larger accounts from a global North American perspective or even just larger Canadian clients uh, was a fantastic opportunity. And how about your time at uh, Dentsu Boss? What's really interesting about this is this is where you made the jump to VP level. So uh, that jump in your career, your responsibilities changed. Uh, you might have had to change even as a manager. Tell us about that. Uh, it was one thing I was really looking for. There, there's two things that I, I really love to do uh, personally, and that is to lead and to learn. And in my other roles at BBDO and uh, somewhat at Kenna, uh, I was looking for more of that leadership role again. Um, to, um, to help grow teams and to help grow people. It's something I, I found really exciting. And with Dentsu and Dentsu Boss, uh, that, that gave me that chance with an agency background and with my techn technical background to bring those expertise to them and, again, help, uh, help lead an organization. But 360i, this is a real interesting one because rather than coming in as a senior person in an already established agency, uh, you had the chance to build this from the ground up. This was, would you say that this is probably one of the most entrepreneurial things that you've done? It is, and I was uh, very lucky to be given that opportunity. 360i uh, is and was one of the best agencies in North America. In particular at that time, um, when I started working with them, it was the day after the infamous Super Bowl tweet uh, with the Oreo. Okay. Was that when the lights went out in New Orleans? It was indeed. Okay. It really opened my eyes uh, to the scope and scale that could be achieved in working in merging data and creative together and understanding how insights can be used very quickly and very smartly um, to support a brand. And uh, from the entrepreneurial aspect, absolutely, I had the opportunity to build that agency from the ground up and uh, to help uh, support the, the existing clients within Dentsu and uh, new clients on my own. So then when you were employee number one at 360i, were you wearing a number of hats, kind of pounding the pavement at the ground level while trying to manage things at the top level as well? Absolutely. Uh, I don't know how many hats in particular. Uh, but again, back to what I said before about doing different things, uh, I relish that opportunity to have to be involved in a number of different aspects of the business. Uh, I feel like I could learn a lot and learn a lot more doing that. And this grew into, or you moved over there uh, from there to Mindshare. We've already established what the chief strategy officer is, but give us a bit of insight how you found your way to Mindshare because uh, it seemed like what you had going at 360i was absolutely fantastic, and it was your baby. It was my baby, and it was very difficult to leave. Throughout my career, I've had a chance to work with a number of media companies, and uh, some of those experiences have been positive and some have been negative. 
there was a couple of clients that Mindshare and Dentsu and 360i shared, and that was how I first uh, became introduced to them. But what really attracted to me, and I hadn't considered joining media, it wasn't on my career path, um, but talking more about the use of data and talking about the use of analytics, I saw a real opportunity here at Mindshare to really um, add to what is an incredibly strong agency uh, with my background and experience. I got to meet you through Mindshare's huddle. Uh, some like to refer to it as the anti-conference, and they do it every November in Toronto. Uh, give us the elevator pitch as to what the uh, Mindshare's huddle is uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar with it who might be listening. It's an all-day session where we invite our uh, media partners to come in and to talk about something and not sell something. There was a theme that developed. This year the theme was what's possible. And it's a day where our staff and clients just have the ability to think provocatively and talk differently about the issues uh, within our industry. One other thing that you do at Mindshare is you lead new business pitches. Uh, myself, I'm a media sales rep, so I find this really interesting uh, when I'm talking to people who do new, new business development on the agency side. Because I talk to agencies, and there, even if you don't want to talk to a sales rep, there is an apparatus in place to anticipate us, an RFP process. But for you guys, it's a little bit different. How do you guys go about finding new prospective clients? I mean, in isolation as a, a Canadian company, going after Canadian first advertisers, and then supporting the global efforts because Mindshare is a global company and there are, uh, there are clients that you guys represent globally. In advertising and in media, uh, a lot of growth uh, within business is done through pitches. Uh, of course, we're looking to expand scope and to add additional value to clients through organic growth. Um, but the, the real changes happen with pitches and, and the winning of pitches. Uh, Mindshare, from a Canadian, North American, and global perspective, has been very lucky to win a number of large assignments over the last few years. Um, and with I, I say all that, and yes, it is, it is a very strange process um, in that you're given uh, a few weeks' notice as to what your assignment is going to be, and it's usually a pretty significant uh, assignment of planning uh, a media buy for a full media buy for, for a brand. Um, the process itself uh, should not come out of the blue to people who are involved in the industry and involved in uh, understanding what is coming up and when it last came up and something that we actively track to make sure that we're not surprised. In my role as a chief strategy officer, I help lead that because of, from the storytelling perspective and insights perspective. There's lots of other teams that support it uh, in the investment side and calling on uh, vendors and, and getting them to support us, and also other teams uh, to, to help formulate the ideas together. So looking back at your career, everything you've done, not just at Mindshare, but uh, the other places you've worked, specifically in media, has there been a campaign or a win that you've really been uh, proud of that might have been cutting edge for the time, something that was uh, uh, market leading? One thing that's really interesting we're doing right now with a uh, transportation company and travel company of ours is through analytics and through modeling, we're able to tell them uh, when a campaign should end. And it's a strange thing when we first said to, you know, we're saying to a client, you should stop investing your money. You should stop investing media in this particular campaign right now. And that's a very different conversation. To yeah, have that with is a client today. pretty interesting to just say you should stop it here because we're very used to working with hard stop days. 
And so you need clients and vendors who are flexible in the buy and an understanding that that money is going to be used somewhere else. But the focus on ROI and the focus on uh, delivering value is just increasing. And with the insights we're developing and with the tools we have available to us, we can understand the point of diminishing return for a client like that and, yeah, turn off the media when we need to. Is there anything specific that you'd want to change in, in media? Like if you had the opportunity to push one idea through or one thing that you believed in? Yeah, I would say that right now measurement um, happens after the fact, and it's thought of as reporting. Oh, whether it's a post report or campaign report, and it's done after the fact. I think measurement and analytics should lead the planning process and lead the overall strategy uh, for what a client is going to be doing. I close all of my episodes with this question. If you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Well, if I didn't need any money, I would um, <laughs> cycle everywhere all the time to explore and learn new things. I love riding, I love learning, and I, I, love, uh, I love expanding what I do. Devin, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Well, thanks very much, Victor. Thanks for listening to today's show. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching Media People Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Vic Genova.